0: and welcome to Old Testament in Faith, part of the In Faith series of podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Dynick, and this week we're diving into Genesis 1, taking a look at the seven days of creation to find some intersections between science and faith. Whether you take a literal approach to the telling or not, this episode will have some good stuff for you. So let's get started. Well, it's good to be back in the recording studio, as it were, after taking a week more or less off. So as I kind of was thinking would happen, getting used to the new schedule of working at Cleveland Metro parks as part of their trail crew was very tiring. It's hard physical labor. Last week was, you know, the hottest week we've had so far. Every single day was in the nineties. So fortunately in the woods, so in the shade a little bit, but still pretty stifling hot. And then just trying to figure out, you know, what I have time for when I come home and things like that. So sure enough, kind of got a little bit behind, ended up not scripting the episode until Saturday morning. But actually, now that I've done that, I kind of like that schedule. So, you know, this coming Saturday morning, which, you know, while you're listening to this, essentially, um, if you listen to it as soon as it comes out, I'll actually be working on the script for next week's episode. Then I can record it Thursday night after my last day of work for the week and then edit it on Friday and release on Saturday. So it should be a good schedule. Then it'll just be a matter of working everything else in, focusing more on doing this stuff on the weekends, Friday and Saturday, whatever it is I'm going to be working on. I think first on the list is to do another short story. I have one in mind, this time coming from book two is where we pulled from, and I'm kind of excited about the ideas for it. So hopefully you'll be seeing that in the coming weeks. But for now, let's go ahead and finally actually dive into the Bible. And here we're going to go again, taking a second look at a passage of scripture, seeing if maybe there are some assumptions that we may not need to carry with us. But maybe there are. Let's start out, though, with a little bit of time dispelling some more negative reactions and trying to remember what Christianity and the Bible are about. I want to start by talking about taking a literal interpretation of the Bible. And some of you might be starting to worry already, so let me see if I can set your mind at ease a little bit. What I am not doing and never want to do is reinterpret the Bible so that it's convenient for me or more easy to accept. Right up there, with only pulling out the verses that prove you right is the practice of chipping away at the meaning of a verse or passage, watering it down or downright nullifying it in order to get rid of a guilty conscience. If you're not being challenged by the Bible, you're not reading it right. Paul, in Galatians 5, verse 24, says that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. And let's remember that crucifixion is not a pleasant or easy experience, in case you had forgotten that. The flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. You are in a battle between body and spirit, a true knockdown, drag-out fight. Paul also talked about striking blows to his flesh, not actually physically, though some interpret it that way. But he's talking about bringing his body in submission to his spirit and the spirit of God so that he does not sin. No matter where or how you look at it, our journey toward greater holiness is not an easy one. And we cheat ourselves if we soften scripture to make it easier on our flesh, trying to slowly bring it comfortably into death instead of annihilating it with extreme prejudice. Our flesh is out to kill us. And Satan is helping every step he can, and we need to embrace that fact if we're going to have any chance of living the life God has in store for us. So I absolutely advocate a literal interpretation of the Bible when that interpretation draws us closer to God. The problem arises when we interpret literally a passage that was written metaphorically, like the one we just mentioned, for the sake of a literal interpretation of 1 Corinthians 9.27, where Paul strikes a blow to my body and makes it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. There are those who engage in self-flagellation, whipping themselves and descending into masochism, which is a sin, by the way, instead of a metaphorical interpretation, leading to the godly practices of self-control, fasting, and seeking first God's kingdom, rather than earthly comforts. Instead, if we take this 1 Corinthians passage backwards— We start with the goal of remaining qualified for the prize. The purpose is to abstain from sin so that you receive your reward in heaven. In order to abstain from sin, we need to bring our bodies under subjection of our spirits, making it our slave instead of our being a slave to it. To bring it under subjection, it's necessary for us to realize that we are not subject to it once we are in Christ. We do that by denying its earthly demands for pleasure and comfort. Only by forcing ourselves to a point where we have to rely on Christ and not our body can we experience the true sufficiency of Christ. Until then, it's all academic. Whenever you catch yourself saying, I can't have peace, security, or relax, or be free from worry without this earthly fill-in-the-blank, that is when your body is ruling you instead of you ruling it. Anyway, massive aside, that's a little freebie for you. So, literal interpretations often apply, but we need to be careful of when they don't. A literal interpretation can lead us into sin just as easily as a metaphorical interpretation. Let's understand that. The second myth I want to dispel is that science and faith are inherently at war with one another. It can be a common mistake. As soon as someone says, Well, science says this, then we automatically think it's contrary to scripture. At its heart, though, science is the study of what God has created. It is scientists' who are opposed to God, and who use science to justify their lack of faith. But this is also true. A person who is committed to denying God will use whatever reasoning and logic they need to to maintain that denial. Science just happens to be a common, convenient ideology, because also by its nature, it cannot prove God exists. God is not something that can be stuck in a lab and tested with instruments. He is not a law the same way the laws of physics are a law, wherein each and every instance he performs in exactly the same way. His interactions with us are always tailored to our personality, our level of faith, and the gaps between where we are and where he wants us to be. What I don't want to do, though, is ignore the study of his creation when it does accurately inform our understanding of what he has made. Part of the wonder of his blessings is a universe that can be studied and explored and is so vastly and nearly infinite that we will never be done studying and exploring it. So we do a disservice to what our God of order and not chaos has done in his creation when we reject his natural laws for the sake of a literal interpretation of his revelation. Third and finally, and then we'll get into the text. We need to understand that what we're about to discuss is not a salvation issue. Whether you believe the earth is 6,000 years old or some billions does not dictate where you spend eternity. We looked at this a few weeks ago, but your salvation depends only on whether you say with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, or not. After that, everything else will be shown to you and I by God when the time is appropriate. So, in store for us today is a long discussion of why we might not need to believe the earth was created in seven calendar days. And then a very short reversal undermining everything we've just talked about, showing that the earth may indeed have been created only 6,000 years ago, even though it looks like it's far older. Let's begin and first just read through the entire creation story Genesis chapter 1 and the first three verses of chapter 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. "'Then God said, "'Let the land produce vegetation, "'seed bearing plants and trees on the land "'that bear fruit with seed in it, "'according to their various kinds.' "'And it was so. "'The land produced vegetation, "'plants bearing seed according to their kinds, "'and trees bearing fruit with seed in it "'according to their kinds. "'And God saw that it was good. "'And there was evening and there was morning the third day. "'And God said, "'Let there be lights in the vault of the sky "'to separate the day from the night, "'and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times "'and days and years.' And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. They will be yours for food, and to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds in the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. The first thing I want us to notice is the pattern of this passage, which we should all be familiar with, right? And it's fairly unique to this story alone. God saw that X was good, and there was evening and there was morning, the nth day. We don't see that often in scripture, certainly not in the narrative portions, where each event is kind of bookended by this recurring phrase. We might say in Chronicles, places like that, where we're getting the list of kings of Israel and Judah, whether they did good or evil, how long their reign was, and who succeeded them, but that's kind of natural, right? We could do the same thing with American presidents, if we're just giving a litany of who they were and how long they served as president. But here, in creation, there almost seems to be a narrative device, wouldn't you say? Something to help us remember, maybe. A common refrain that, once you've memorized one, you can memorize the rest. And that's probably what is happening here. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, so he's writing events that took place long before he was born. A fairly common idea is that this creation story was handed down generation to generation through speaking. It may not have been written down, but was instead given by God for parents to tell their children, and do so in a way that would be easy to remember and continue to pass down. In and of itself, not a problem. But let's look at some other things happening here, maybe not so obvious. I want you to imagine, in your mind, or write it down if you want, a graph— with two columns and three rows. In the first column are days one, two, and three. Beside them in the second column are days four, five, and six. And then let's look at each of these. Day one, starting in verse three. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Then day four, starting in verse 14. And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. So, day one and day four, God created light, and he created lights. Interesting, then, that light now comes from the sun, but in the story, there was light before there was sun. We might wonder why. Now, let's hold on to that for now, because we're going to start seeing a couple odd things happening as we go. Day two, starting in verse six. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Now, day five, starting in verse 20. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teams and that moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. So day two, he creates, or at least distinguishes, waters and sky. Day five, he creates fish and birds to inhabit the water and sky. Interesting, I think, that science speculates that life began in the waters, then moved on to land. Not exactly in line with scripture, but the first living creatures mentioned in Genesis is in the water. Day three, starting in verse nine. And God said, let the water under the skies be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. Day six, starting in verse twenty four. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Skipping ahead to verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So day three he creates, or at least distinguishes, land and covers it with vegetation day six he creates living creatures to inhabit it then to cap everything to draw it to completion day seven is a day of rest and reflection on everything he had created just as god rests from his labors we rest from ours to remind us that it is not our power that creates but his all we do is work with what he has already given us so you see this parallelism at work too now again as a narrative style it can help us memorize the story Day 1 light, day 2 sea and sky, day 3 land and vegetation, day 4 lights, day 5 living creatures in the sea and sky, day 6 living creatures on the land and among the vegetation. There's also a fair amount of agreement already between science and Genesis. Both narratives describe a beginning to the universe. The universe progresses from the simple to the complex, from basic life to more advanced life, and we can go deeper than that. According to science, The Earth would not have had a clear sky like it does now in the beginning. It would have been a thick, noxious haze. At some point, they discover the amount of oxygen increasing, which would have led to clearer skies and the ability for plants to grow. So we could imagine, then, that day and night on an Earth covered by noxious haze to be a more simple light and dark. If we could have been alive, we would have been able to distinguish between the two only by those two terms we wouldn't be able to see the sun or moon, and certainly not the stars, in such a thick darkness. But then something happened, according to one scientific theory. Volcanoes that had been erupting under the sea, that had been creating this toxic and thick fume, were suddenly thrust through tectonic action above the surface of the sea. The fumes from these volcanic vents, instead of creating a deadly gas, created simply ash, in itself still not very healthy, but not an oxygen-killing gas. This sudden upthrust of volcanoes almost sounds like let the dry land appear, does it not? Suddenly, oxygen is possible. As it increases, plant life appears, just as it does in creation. As plant life appears and starts converting carbon dioxide into more oxygen, the skies clear up. Now, we can see sun, moon, and stars. there all the time, but invisible to our eyes. Suddenly, it's as if they pop into existence. Now, that's not exactly what Genesis says, does it? It says he created lights in the vault of the sky. But remember, too, he created light in the beginning. And we must ask where the light came from and why or if it is different from the lights he creates on day four. Okay, so maybe you're all well and good with all of that. But we still have the seven days delineated very clearly in the narrative, right? So let's take a little linguistic journey then. What do we mean by evening or morning? Just so you know, the Hebrew in this case is fairly clearly referring to evening and morning. There's not something being lost in translation. But how do we know it's evening? Without looking at your watch or your phone, you can look out the window and on a clear day, you can say it's evening without even thinking about it. We might think of long shadows or daylight slowly growing dimmer or stars beginning to appear on the opposite horizon. Maybe even some brightly colored clouds. We also know that sunset is dependent on location, right? When the sun is setting here in Ohio, it's rising somewhere else. It's directly overhead on another part of the Earth. Long shadows, darkening skies, the appearance of stars, and brightly colored clouds all only appear at specific times and to a specific slice of the Earth. That's why we have time zones, why TV shows are on at 6 p.m. Eastern or 5 p.m. Central and Pacific Time. So, to observe evening and morning denotes observation from a particular spot on Earth. So, in Genesis 1 and 2, where are we observing these evenings and mornings? You might say, well, once the entire Earth has experienced one evening and one morning, and okay, I guess, but without a sun and moon until day four? There are some who say that maybe the eons of time occurred within those first three days, but once the sun and moon were created, then the rest were real actual calendar days like we have now. So then, we support a metaphorical translation of verses 3 through 13, but only a literal one after that? It still says the first day, the second day, the third day, using the exact same Hebrew words as the fourth day, the fifth day, and the sixth day. So why must they be metaphorical evenings and mornings and days at first, then literal ones after that? Is it not possible that the creation story is a narrative? Not fiction, per se, but perhaps an allegory of sorts, one long memory device to understand that God created the earth in a certain order and in a certain way, and one in which, as we've seen, is not so widely divergent from what science tells us. All that evolutionary theory does wrong, at least from my perspective, is to try to get rid of God to try to say that all this stuff came about as a result of natural processes without the need of a God or some divine creator to explain it all away. Whether he did it in six days or several billion is meaningless. The simple fact is he did it. It didn't do it itself. One quick story and then I'll reverse everything I've just argued for in one passage of scripture. I was visiting Durango, Colorado a few years back and I took the Durango and Silverton narrow gauge train up to Silverton for the afternoon. On the way back, in one of the many spots where the train ran under this tall cliff, I noticed beside the tracks a pile of stones, way out in the middle of nowhere. Didn't really see a trail nearby or anything, but there were three or four large stones stacked on top of one another. And I thought, huh, someone's stacking stones out here. And it struck me, why did I assume a person was doing it? Why don't we assume at the base of the cliff stones that fall might stack on top of one another? To me, this is the simplest explanation of why evolution without God is senseless. We know that stones don't stack on top of one another, at least not three or four of them in a neat pile. Invariably, one of the stones, if they're simply falling or rolling into place, will knock over the structure and reduce it to an unstacked pile. And yet there are those who think the incredible, mind-bogglingly complex systems of life we see in the universe simply fell into place. Structures far more complex than a stack of a couple of stones. I do not see evidence otherwise of a universe that tends toward order and increasing complexity, except in living things. But even those living things degrade and decompose. So I cannot fathom an assumption that, in this one instance of life, chaos would create complexity. The only way that happens is when something with a will brings chaos into specific order, like stacking random fallen stones into a cairn to guide the way for others. So, how do we justify belief in a seven-day creation and a young earth? John chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from twenty to thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. I can only imagine, as good as this wine was supposed to be, aged to perfection in an appropriate cask of whatnot, that if a scientist were to get a hold of a sample and put it in a lab, he or she would declare without reservation that the wine showed every marking of a certain age a certain level of fermentation, specific alcohol content that only comes from a chemical reaction that takes place over a certain amount of time. If Jesus then can create an excellent wine in an instant that has every appearance of a wine that would take months or perhaps years to ferment naturally, why cannot God create in six days a universe that bears every appearance of a system that would take billions of years to happen naturally? I don't know why he would, except to prove that he is God and is exceptionally powerful. One of the things I want us to start doing as we're going through the Old Testament, a practice to put in place, and really you can do this with any passage of scripture that you read, but especially start to do it with ones where maybe you're struggling to understand what's happening. As you're reading it, you can think to yourself, or more ideally, pray, and ask the Holy Spirit to show you what is it about God that we can learn from this passage. Going back to this idea that whether or not it's actually important, Whether the earth was created in seven days, the scripture says, or seems to say, or whether it was created in billions of years that science says it was, is when we read this creation story, what can we learn about God from it? Certainly one of the easy things to take away from this is, as we've said, his incredible power. That God could say, let there be light, and there was light. That he could say, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water, and it was so. That he could say, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear, and it was so. At each and every one of these times, God had only to speak, and whatever it was he said came into being. This, I hope, is something that whether you believe the earth was created in seven days or whether you believe it was created in millions of years, that we can agree on this one fact: that God is awesome. And powerful. But let's also recognize, too, that God cares about us. Verse 27 says, So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them, male and female, He created them. In verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then He gives every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth to us for food. As well. So there's an incredible amount of care and love in this that he spent this time creating this incredible universe and then hands it to us. We could say the pinnacle of his creation, hands to us the bearers of his image and tells us to take care of it. And then thousands of years later, Jesus comes to earth and he starts asking the people who claim to believe in God or who want to believe in God, why are you worried? Why are you afraid? Why do you have so little faith that the God who loves you and cares for you so much that he stamped his own image on you, that he is powerful enough that if he wants to make a change, if he wants to move on our behalf or on the world's behalf, all he needs to do is say, and it happens. Instead of arguing over whether or not it happened in seven days or in billions of years, let's just remember that God is who he is. He is exceptionally powerful, and he cares about us and loves us very much. So I thank you then, if you've made it this far, for sticking around through all my potential heresy, and I hope whichever side of the fence you feel inclined, that you found something useful and helpful. Join me again next time for our next leg through the Old Testament. Until then, keep the faith and keep it old school.